In the last episode, we discussed what to do with students with anxiety, ADHD, and LD as they transition to college. But what are the best ways to prepare these students in approaching the college process? Today, we'll explore 504 plans and IEPs and their importance in preparing kids for the college process. Welcome to the Highway to Higher Ed, the podcast that considers issues facing students applying to college as they attempt to make the transition into higher education. I'm your host, Alex W. Merrill. I'm joined today by educational consultant Meg Flanagan of Meg Flanagan Educational Solutions. She offers a wealth of experience, having previously earned her MED in special education with a focus on ASD, ADHD, and other mild to moderate learning differences. Her career previous to consulting was in the classroom, where she taught in public, private, and home schools across the globe. She's also previously run a successful tutoring business. Currently, she offers a number of services, particularly supporting students who have IEPs, 504s, or 2E needs, as well as those in military families as a coach and expert consultant. Meg, welcome to the show. Meg, tell me a little bit about your career history and how you got into consulting. So uh, I have a master's in special education and dual undergrad degrees in history and elementary education. Uh, primarily, I specialize in consulting with families of kiddos in the K to 6th, 7th grade range, hmm. but I do have my fair share of high schoolers as well. Um, I ended up pivoting from classroom teaching to consulting because I'm a military spouse. And when you move around the world every three years, uh, maintaining licensure and finding a job becomes very challenging. Uh, However, I realized that there's this huge gap in the military community, specifically when it comes to children with special education needs. There's lots of really good programming um, to, to try and get the families to the right bases and the right places with the right schools and the right um, medical care, but there's not a lot of support or explanation for, for parents about how to advocate for their child and like what boxes need to be checked in order to move on to college or to a job or what happens after high school is done. And so I just kind of said, hey, I got a degree. I have multiple degrees in this area. Let me help you. Um, and from there, I launched my business. So say I, you know, I'm a parent and I sign up with you and I have a kid that seems, you know, pretty slow in processing speed. What would the kind of the first step be? The first step with me is always a 15 minute complimentary consultation. I am dedicated to making sure that I am the right fit for every family. And it's fine if a family chooses not to work with me and chooses a different consultant or chooses no consultant at all. But I do want every client to come in with eyes wide open about the limitations of my service and the areas of my expertise. After that, we would chat about uh, kind of the realistic goals that the parents and the child, uh, especially for older kiddos in middle school and high school, mm. what they see themselves doing, what they perceive as their areas of strength or weakness, mm. what their goals are. Then we take a look at the plan. If there's a plan in place already, I go through it with a fine tooth comb and create my own analysis document of areas of strength and weakness in the plan and then provide suggestions about how to beef it up. A 504, an IEP, um, if there are recommendations, so if there's already been testing, 
done. I go through the testing again with a fine tooth comb. And then I just say, you know, hey, this is what this looks like in the classroom. As someone who has been in the classroom, these are the kinds of things that are easy yeses for teachers. These are the kind of things that you're going to need to negotiate on or, mm -hmm. or be flexible about. I try to be very real with parents about what the process is going to look like and be like. It's not as simple as a meeting. It's, it could be five meetings. It could be 10 meetings. It could be you leave me and you go find a lawyer and go to due process. So every family is different. If I'm working with a teacher, um, I recommend they set up a spreadsheet and that mm -hmm. way they can kind of almost color code. So let's say you have 10 kids with 504 and or IEPs in your classroom, then you can say, you know, who, who gets small group? Well, these five kids get small group testing. These four kids are reading at between at this reading level to this reading level. These five are reading this level, reading level to this reading level. This kid gets extended time. This kid gets prep. And you just color code it out. And then when you're actually lesson planning, you keep that beside of you. And then you can just look at it really quickly and say, oh, these are the adjustments I need to make in my lesson plan to service my kids. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I think it's, I think it's critical translation of that information to teachers. And I don't think that always mm -hmm. happens. I mean, I think it's yeah. just sometimes you get an envelope with the, this testing in it. It's like, here you go, like, good luck. And, and the teacher puts it in their desk and never looks at it again. Yeah. So I think those efforts to actually provide that to the teacher in a form that there is going to be useful and practical to that teacher. I think that's that's key. I mean, I think one of the most key metrics in education is class size. I just think it's mm -hmm. so different if you're sitting around a, you know, a circle of eight kids versus like 20, 25, it's a completely different educational experience. I agree. And it's easier when you have those small group sizes as a teacher to be very specific and intentional in your interventions with kids and how you're helping them transition to the next grade or the next phase of life and how you're accommodating them. Like sitting in a 50, 500 person lecture, you're not gonna get a whole lot of necessarily value out of that, in my opinion. In the public school, you're not just gonna have one, you're gonna have 10 or 12. So there's a significant population now of kiddos with 504 plans for a variety of things. I, allergies, I have food allergies. I could have, if I had been born a decade or 15 years later, I could have gotten a 504 plan for food allergies. Wow, I didn't know they could do that. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. It's it's considered a disability under the ADA because it impacts one or more major life areas. How about that? I had no idea. Yeah. My son is deathly allergic to, uh, of all things, sunflower seeds. So, well, he can have a five hundred four plan because <laughs> he needs to avoid those in order to equitably access his learning environment. Right. I mean, I guess that's the logic of it. Maybe you could sort of uh, compare and contrast IEPs and 504s for us. I mean, just, you know, what what's the story with, with those two things? This is something that is confusing for everybody in the education field unless you specialize in it. So special education or IEPs, they last from ages three until the student ends high school. So either when they graduate at 18 or in some states, 21 or 22. You have to check your state's specific laws and then cross-reference it with the federal law, which mm. is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, IDEA. You have to check your specific state's law. I think it's normally 21 uh, is when IEPs end. There's no IEP for college. But yep. if I go to a college in, say, Connecticut, 
and they do mm -hmm. have that 21 to 22 year old uh, range right. with the They've college already graduated from high school at that point. So, oh, I see. I see. Okay. But that's All where right. 504 kicks in. So 504 covers your entire life, your entire life. My, my biggest recommendation to really understand what section 504 is about is to watch Crip Camp. It's on Netflix. Um, it's about Judy Human and uh, her cohorts uh, and colleagues at this camp that was founded in, uh, I want to say, upstate New York for students, with, for children with disabilities. And over the years, they started to really advocate for themselves. But basically, IEPs is remodeling the house. When you think about grade level expectations, you know, let's take sixth grade, you're going to be doing uh, pre-algebra, you're going to be learning about US history, you're going to be doing novel studies. And, and there's a certain level at which you're expected to achieve. Children with an IEP are no longer going to be expected to achieve at that set level in one or more areas. They're going to have individual goals. So you're remodeling the house. Instead of having yeah. to read City of Ember, you are reading a third grade level novel on similar themes and answering similar questions, but it's not sixth grade level. So you're not, you're not expected to meet sixth grade level standards with sixth grade level material. You're expected to meet your personal goals uh, using similar. Okay. As a teacher, you're still saying, hey, these are the thematic elements of the standard of learning in sixth grade. The student addressed these, but they're doing it with their material on their level. Is this something that's triggered automatically if you're in public school, private school? Is this something that parents have to pay for? Is this. So in private school, private schools do not need to offer any specialized education. In some cases, in public school, there's a, a trigger called child find. And so it applies to everyone that resides in a public school district or learning education, local education agency, LEA. So everyone that, say, lives in your town, the school district, is required to determine which children have disabilities in that district and then assess them to determine if the eligibility is there. And then if the eligibility is there to offer some sort of service, what states need to offer is different at each state level. So for example, in my, in my city, kids at Catholic school can come to the public school and get speech therapy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which Even though really they're cool. not enrolled there, they're Even enrolled. Even though they're not enrolled mm. okay. because they're still students in this district and they pay their families, presumably pay district taxes, right, they can right, access right. this service via child find. But that varies um, by state, you're saying? It can vary by state. Mm, yeah. Mm, so it is. this is why it is so tricky for parents and why you do need to look at your state's individual laws and perhaps have someone interpret the laws for you. Understood is a really good, understood.org is a really good resource for that. And then rights law, W-R-I-G-H-T-S, L-A-W is like the premier special education law center. So the way that parents can trigger a child find study is they can just simply submit a written request and they can do this when their kiddo is tiny in preschool. They can do it when their kid is in fifth grade in high school. You submit a written request and say, dear district, basically, I would like my child to be assessed to determine eligibility and for special education services in the following areas. And you can pick any area of relevance. You could do PT, OT, speech, language, social skills, math, all the academic areas 
districts have tons of standardized measures that they can use to assess a child to determine special education eligibility. So some states use the two standard deviation rule. So you have to be two standard deviations below the norm in order to qualify for special education. Some states use a standards base based on the grade level standard. So you have to be two levels below grade level to qualify, even if that's not standard deviations. Some states use like the qualifier on the label. So average, low average, low, very low. And that differs depending on which of the 13 areas of IEP eligibility your student is being assessed for. If we could maybe back up and ask a more generic and perhaps even silly question, but why is this testing so important to, to have for students? IEPs and 504 plans are based solely on data points. So I can come in with my kiddo without testing and, and tell you all the things that I think are wrong or that I think need support. But if there are no data points, everything is anecdotal. Without data, nothing can happen because all of the metrics for qualification require hard quantitative data. For the yeah. extra time, you need to be able to have the data point and then translate the data point into saying, based on this metric, this child needs extra time. Because on this test, they had 20 problems to do, but they only got to five in the allotted time because they have a diagnosis of ADHD or they have a processing disorder. And so in order for them to do the 20 questions, they're going to need X amount of time. So my big thing is always more data is more data, but I like to look at the numbers because then the numbers really tell a pattern. So for example, a kid with a specific learning disability, there's going to be a very clear discrepancy in their area of weakness versus their area of strength. So let's say like dyslexia, Hmm. you're going to see, typically, you're going to see a child that is very verbal, verbally expressive. You're going to see a child that is likely very good at math, except for word problems. But then you're going to get to reading. And when, when that child is required to read and take it in, process it, and then spit it back out, there's yeah. going to be that disconnect. And that is going to be visible in the data. Got it. There's going to be issues with phonetic processing, phonemes, phonological processing, reading comprehension, writing processing writing speed, written expression. So there'll be a very clear discrepancy. Yeah, and the testing, right? I mean, I think that stuff Mm -hmm. can slip by in the classroom because they've developed sort of like techniques and ways of compensating for their weaknesses. So for instance, if they uh, have a verbal processing disorder, they will avoid reading out loud. Or they'll act out, they'll deflect attention. That's the, the classic as teachers we've all we've we've had, you know, the class clown and growing up everyone knows sure. the class clown. Sure. But how much of that class clown behavior is behavior to deflect attention from their weaknesses? Yeah, exactly. So whenever when they're called on in math and they don't know the answer, it's not because they've been goofing off necessarily, it's because they can't process the math in their head. Got and it. so and so they're gonna yell out nonsense or they're gonna make a joke. Teachers go, oh, Billy. The other thing that's tricky is with girls. Girls do not present the same way as boys. So a, a female child with autism has, and, and we're, we're talking specifically more about the range of autism that was perhaps qualified as Asperger's. A kiddo on the spectrum, perhaps a kiddo that's verbal, a kiddo that, you know, is of average or of intelligence. High functioning. 
that child is going to present differently than a boy. So a boy might be more stereotypically. Mm -hmm. They have very fixed mm -hmm. interests. They have some stimming. Girls somehow are able to model and mimic a lot more than males. So wow. a girl might be able to fly under the radar. She still mm. has that fixed interest, but she's able to subvert it and isn't just going to talk about Legos 100% of the time. She might talk about Legos a lot, but not in a way that you're like, huh, she's talking about Legos all of the time. That's interesting. It's the same with girls with ADHD. So whereas boys typically, and I'm speaking in very yes, large generalizations right. here, yes, of course. boys are our classic kiddos with ADHD. They're a little bit, they're a little bit goofy, a little bit silly. They can't sit still. They fidget a lot. They're up, they're down, they're everywhere. They're bouncing off the walls. Sure. Girls tend to be more of the zone out, but they're not paying attention in an, in an obtrusive way. They're, they're still looking at their desk. It looks like they're working, but they're not. And so, yeah, a lot of these like gray area disabilities, diagnoses, girls tend to fly under the radar. One point that stuck out to me in the first segment of my conversation with Meg was about that translation to a teacher, you know, with those 504s and IEPs. To me, that's where the real value happens because the teacher really is on the front line with the student. The value of 504s or IEPs in the classroom is going to be how much your teacher gets out of that. And just simply providing it to the teacher doesn't necessarily accomplish that. The time you know, when it actually was utilized by the teachers was when the administration actually made an effort to apply the conclusions of that report with, with the teachers. In the first segment of our discussion, Meg did a nice job of laying out differences between IEPs and 504s. You know, what stuck out to me is that the 504 is for life. And the IEP in most states, uh, although she said there are some differences, only really goes up through grade 12 for the most part. You know, advanced preparation is important. You know, you, the last thing you want is to be scrambling to put these things into place on the fly. So it's important to check out, you know, not only what the policies are in the state for your student in terms of high school, but where they're going to college as well, because that is really what applies once they reach higher education. You know, how does educational testing help support kids as they make those transitions? A lot of colleges, uh, like we talked about with the college board earlier in the SAT, the ACT also, um, they do require fairly recent testing in order to qualify for accommodations. If you're applying to college and your child has a disability or has an IEP or a 504 plan, you should always reach out to the college's, um, the disability support office, for lack of a better term. But you should always reach out and say, hey, my kiddo has, when should they have been tested last in order to qualify for accommodations at college? Mm -hmm. um, so more mm -hmm. recent testing is going to get you farther. Some people feel like once you've gotten your kiddo to high school, then maybe you can kind of back off on the testing, the rigorous testing. So let's say, you know, the, the last test was in eighth grade. So I did a full battery of testing, transitioned to high school, brand new yeah. IEP in ninth grade, a lot. And then coming to the end of junior year, they're up for another reeval. And so some parents will say, okay, well, they only have one more year. We are going to just say, 
we're going to use the data points of their grades and just mm -hmm. continue the IEP into senior year as is, or, you know, adjusting accommodations or, or goals or what, whatever. I think that you're better off getting the testing at jun in junior year yeah. because then you have newer data to walk into the college board with, you have newer mm. data to walk into actual college with. And if your child is transitioning into the working world, having newer data will enable their employer to better serve their needs because 504s are for life. That's why we have ramps and sidewalks and ramps into buildings and Braille everywhere is section 504. All of those accessibility things that we take for granted in 2021, those weren't there in the 80s. In order to, to have your employer accommodate your needs, so I'm thinking about working from home if you're immunocompromised. That's now a thing you can do mm. in this world is, hey, I'm immunocompromised. There's a virus out there that I am more susceptible to. I can do my work from home because it's an online interface. Um, I would argue too, I mean, as you're transitioning into college, that it's important to have those accommodations um, educationally yes. as well. I mean, just executive function, yeah. I guess, is what I'm thinking of in particular, yes. um, because yes. the structure of your life changes radically when you get into freshman year there, which short circuits a lot of kids. So so my argument for that would be that that transition actually needs to start happening in seventh and eighth grade to beef up the executive functioning portions of most children's IEPs. By most children, I mean children that are that have a goal and an expectation or an anticipation of going on to some form of higher education. If you're pre-teaching those skills in seventh and eighth grade and then continuing on through high school, that freshman year shock is less of a shock and it's more of a bounce. And I also counsel or advise parents to consider the community college option for students that are making this transition, especially if you have a strong community college. Like New England has a very strong network of community colleges with campuses everywhere. Those are typically more local and you're able to get your core credits done in a smaller, less expensive, more supportive environment. And mom and dad or, or their family members are, are right there. That is a great option for students with learning differences That's too. Benefit of being local. If you could give parents one piece of advice in entering this process, what would that one piece of advice be? Get every single thing decided, discussed. Everything about your child needs to be done in writing. If it is not in writing, mm. it never happened. You and I can sit down and have mm. a conversation, a conversation all day long about how mm -hmm. I'm going to accommodate math for your kiddo. But if I don't confirm it in writing, then I don't have to, it's, it's not a committal. So when you're requesting a test, writing, email it, send it via certified letter where they have to sign it off to accept delivery, hand, hand deliver it to the school, have the secretary sign it. Anytime you have a meeting, you send a follow-up email covering the points that you discussed in that meeting. Hey, mm -hmm. Alex, thank you mm -hmm. so much for our conversation mm -hmm. today. I really love talking to you about the ways that you're going to be shortening the math test for Suzy Q and giving Suzy Q 20 extra minutes on all other assignments and knowing that you're, you're maybe not going to see all of her work until a week later. So if it's assigned, if it's due on Monday, September 1st, you're not going to see that until Monday, September 8th. Got it. Just very confirming specific. that we both have the yeah. same understanding, very specific, very clear, very to the point. That way everyone is in the loop. And then that email gets CC'd 
to the principal, to the special education director, to the case manager, to the 504 plan coordinator, to the school counselor, to all general general education teachers. Anyone that touches your child's education that year gets a copy of everything because then it is on the record. One thing that stuck out to me in the second segment of my conversation with Meg was the early lead that parents really need to have if you have a student of this profile, if you have a student with anxiety, with ADHD, with executive function, with processing disorders. She even said it should happen in seventh or eighth grade when you're talking about preparing for the college process. That really struck me. It takes a long time for this, uh, you know, to, to get the right person in place, the right educational professional who's going to be able to do a good study on your student. You know, the process itself takes time and then the paperwork takes time as well. I mean, with when you're talking about the, the college board, for instance, I, I think you need a lag time of six months. You know, that advanced prep is important from logistical standpoint, but also, you know, just just in terms of that student getting a good self-understanding you know, what is going to work best for them. You don't want to figure that out in 10th, 11th grade when they're struggling academically. And it's like, well, what's happening here? If they have a sense of who they are going into high school, wow, what an advantage you're really providing. And those grades matter. I mean, you know, obviously not as much freshman and sophomore year as junior and senior, but look, it's on the transcript. What do you see as the future of educational testing? In terms of like SATs, ACTs or this, like this whole system. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole IAP and I mean, 504 system is this, you see it evolving at away. all? Or, okay. I would like it. I would like to see it become more person focused. As you are probably very aware, there's an inherent bias in many standardized tests to the detriment of certain uh, segments of our population. So I would like to see less bias in the test. I would like to see more mm -hmm. equity and accessibility, and I would like to see the special education system generally become less bureaucratic and more person-focused, less about checking off boxes and more about making sure we're living up to the spirit of the law. Interesting. And how do you think um, that would best be accomplished? Personally, I think that every child deserves an IEP. Every child learns differently. Every single child, there's no one approach that is going to work for every single child, every single day, every single year. I think that every child needs accommodations and modifications and teachers that are teaching well do this naturally. You know, they give the extra time when it's needed. They shorten the assignment when it's needed. They, they give, you know, everyone's reading about Paul Revere. Uh, these five kids are reading on fifth grade level. These six are reading on third grade level. They're naturally accommodating for students, but I think teachers having the freedom and the flexibility to move outside of a boxed curriculum would allow them to better address each individual child's needs where they are that day. Perhaps. It's, uh, we'll see. I, I, my, I guess my concern with that is, and this already happens naturally, as a high school English teacher, I would have kids come in ninth grade year. Some of them had never written an essay before. Yes. Some of them had been writing five paragraph essays, you know, since they were mm -hmm. seven years old. And it's because basically the middle school English teachers uh, were doing such a wide variety of things. I think that I, I'm not advocating doing away with standards. I like developmentally appropriate aligned standards. So like 
I'm thinking back to probably when you and I were in elementary school, I like think about your kindergarten. What did you do in kindergarten? My, my kid in kindergarten learned to write a seven word sentence. I remember playing kitchen and like rice table. Yeah. And like yeah. maybe doing my ABCs right, and then listening to right. some lovely stories. I had a cookie and a milk. Then I went outside. And yeah. I, I feel like I'm doing okay in the world at this right. point. Right. But right. Yeah. but like my little girl, she sat in a chair from eight until three. She didn't get creative play centers and she didn't get, you know, also, you know, her kindergarten year got truncated by COVID. Um, mm. So from March until you know, whenever yeah. she did get all of that because she was home with me, but well, it was very regimented. For the best. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, right. love to see more play in the younger grades. I'd love to see less homework in the younger grades. I'd like to see more reasonable flexibility, but also more accountability. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Meg. Anytime. But yeah, this was very, very enlightening, um, very knowledgeable, and uh, oh, I appreciate it. Here are my conclusions after my conversation with Meg Flanagan. I think it's sort of interesting, you know, her take on the impact of the pandemic, particularly on K through 12 students, them being sort of the most adversely affected by online education. You know, there's navigating the sort of special circumstances and the special policies that have been put into place on the fly to sort of deal with the pandemic you know, all the more reason to get these kids the support that they need, that much more. Although she did paint a bit of a, a silver lining, suggesting too that there's a whole lot of resources, tech resources really, that have come out of the pandemic. So really worth exploring those if you do have a student of this profile. Another thing that stuck out to me in my conversation with Meg was her speculation about every child getting an IEP. What would a world look like where they all had those modifications? Well, the closest thing that I ever saw to that came at the King School, where they had a, a department of teaching and learning where they taught the, they actively taught the teachers differentiated instruction. They actively taught them, well, what does uh, processing speed mean? What does working memory mean? What, how does ADHD present? What does anxiety look like in the classroom? They, they teach that to all of their faculty. That, I think, was very valuable. I mean, it, I think it ended up making me a more engaging teacher to a more widely diverse set of students. The kids sure had a lot of fun, and they were really engaged, and it really helped them believe in themselves. I'm intrigued by the possibility of a circumstance where there are profiles for all kids and more importantly, really, that the system makes efforts to meet the kids in the places where they are. Another thing that stuck out to me was this idea that really you should get everything in writing, the sort of official nature. I've always been sort of surprised as a teacher in my experience, you know, in these meetings where you have these sort of interventions when, you know, say a student's not doing very well or, they're, you know, they fail classes, they get some educational testing and they bring all the teachers and administrators in. How often a, an attorney or an advocate, you know, would step into these processes. I mean, that was almost always a good thing, I guess, that that gave the parents an advantage in getting the things that they wanted. 
it helps, I guess, to have a bit of leverage in those conversations and getting, you know, really advantages that those students need. Thanks for listening to Highway to Higher Ed, the podcast that helps the parents of today's rising college stars navigate the obstacles in college admissions to find the best possible college match and help them thrive once they get there. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 